Hi everybody and welcome to the Junction Church Podcast. We pray that this message inspires and encourages you. If you would like to find out any more information about us, then please visit our website at www.thejunctionchurch.com. Thank you for listening. I'm going to read to you in a moment a passage from Colossians, the book of Colossians. Uh, But before I do that, I've got to give you a bit of a background about Colossians because when Paul's writing to the churches like Ephesus or the book of Ephesians, uh, Philippians is another one, there's actually a bit of a background you have to sort of get before you know what he's trying to say. When Paul writes in those days to the Colossians, he's writing with two contexts in mind. Now, the church was very young and it hadn't had time to what can we say, uh, determine some of the boundaries of theology yet. So the church was very integrated with lots of people coming and lots of challenges and lots of stuff going on. They didn't have all the things we have today, theology by system and stuff like this. So in the church at Colossians at the time and Philippians and Ephesians were a group of people called the Gnostics, G-N-O-S-T-I-C. Now Gnostic means to know. It's actually where we get our word agnostic, which means I don't know. But Gnostic came first. The Gnostics had come into the church and had settled into the life of the church. And Paul begins to address this problem of what's called Gnostic belief. Now, Gnostics believed that God was pure, absolutely. But by the time he, they called it emanations, emanations reached earth, they became impure because the earth is impure. So their argument was Jesus could not be God because the emanations, by the time it reached earth, he's one of those emanations, would be impure. So Paul is addressing this Gnostic idea that God, Jesus, is not really God. He's not the son of God. He's not entirely God because of the emanations that affect it. Now, Gnosticism had another special way of dealing with this argument they had, and it was primarily what you might say emotional-based. See, what the Gnostic would do, if you got into an argument with a Gnostic, they were very smart because what they'd say is this, as they were losing the argument maybe or to defend their argument, they'd say something like this, but until you've experienced what I've experienced, you don't really know anything. So their subjective sort of feeling was all truth to them. And if you didn't have that experience, you didn't know anything. Probably a little bit arrogant, right? little bit up there in the clouds. You, can, you might think today, oh, that's not around in the world today. Really? Really? I, I, can, I can tell you it's there now. Take what's happened in America. By, as, a, as a matter of fact, we've had a democratic election by fact. We've got a president over there, whether you like it or not. But there's a whole group of people who are talking about how they feel about that, and that doesn't make it right because my feelings are more important what is fact And I want to tell you, my feelings should dictate the terms, and I want what I want, even though the society has said something else by democratic election. And that's a form of Gnosticism in a way. It's sort of of defending something by their emotional expression. Now, the truth is that in the church, we don't have Gnostics in the church today, but we have the philosophical idea of, well, I know because I've had an experience. Very easy way to back out of an argument. But there was another group of people he had to deal with, and they were called the Greek philosophers. Now, the Greek philosophers, on the other side, of course, were the opposite. They were dealing purely with logic. So everything had to be proved by science, logic, maybe systems. 
And they wouldn't accept Jesus and his life in the world and what he represented unless you could absolutely prove it. Now, that would today be sort of similar to maybe the atheist, scientific atheist, who you've often heard it said, well, you know, until you can prove this, I'm not interested in coming to church. Until you can show me the Bible is true. And they'll get into debate, they'll blog it, they'll Facebook it, they'll get out there and it's all about proving things. I've had these discussions. It's like you're just hitting your head against the wall. Because How do you ever prove some things like this? I've asked them back actually a couple of times, prove evolution. You say me that rock is 250 million years old, prove it. They can't, can they? They can just hold it up and say, I think that. Somebody told me that, but you can't prove it. And so at the, we've got these two things going. Now they were in the church, but today we live in the same realm. The emotional based, I'm right because I feel that way. The logical scientist who said, I need to prove it or you need to prove it to me before I believe it. So Paul writes into the heart of that as he probably would today as well. So he writes this in Colossians chapter 2. Let's read it. He writes, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You're rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with all thanksgiving. Isn't that good words? So he's writing to that context. You therefore have received Christ Jesus. Now walk in him, be rooted in him, built up in him, established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now let me read it to you in the Message Bible, which is actually uh, sort of more, it's more relevant to our language. It uses our sort of tone. He says this. uh, Can you, did you jump? Oh, he's moving. Oh, he's brilliant. He moves it. There's two screens. Technology in this house is amazing. My counsel for you is simple and straightforward. Just go ahead with what you've been given. You receive Jesus Christ, the master. Now live in him. You are deeply rooted in him. You're well constructed in in him. You know your way around the faith. Listen to this. Now do what you've been taught. School's out. Quit studying the subject and start living it and let your living spill out into thanksgiving. Isn't that great? He's saying... Come on, you Christians in there, grow up, get over the philosophical debate. How many people go around in circles with all that emotional stuff or circles of trying to figure it out logically? And he says, school's out. Just live this thing. Isn't that fantastic? I love that idea here because Paul is writing to a scenario that's no different to ours. But look what he said. Here's the first thing he says. He says, you have received him. That's the first thing. You have received him. Now, I like that thought. Because it's actually, it's not me doing something towards this exchange. It's what he brings to the exchange. So I've received something he did. Not, he's not receiving something I did. Isn't it true to say that many people get caught in the trap of, what's the word, thinking they have to be good enough to be right for God? I've heard this saying, well, if I went to church, the roof would fall in. Like, well, you're a bit up yourself, aren't you, really? What are you trying to say? Or, or they'll, they'll see some form of church and say, I don't want a bar of that because you guys are all too religious or you're all this, the other thing. When actually what it's about is just receiving what Jesus has done. Now, there's other people who talk about they're not good enough. They haven't done the right things. I'm not acceptable. I'm too guilty. I, have, I can't be like you. And so they wait till they're good enough to be accepted, but actually you receive something that you didn't have anything to do with. So you're receiving what Jesus did. What happened is 
Jesus died on a cross, gave his life. He built a bridge between you and God so you can connect with him. You receive that into your life. You receive what he did, you know, and you bring nothing to the table. Actually, what it is, is really, it's a matter of giving up control. See, it's not about the things I did or didn't do. It's about saying, I've had enough of trying to control this thing myself. I've had too much time trying to do it on my own. I can't do it on my own. I need something else to help me. I've got to give up control. And when you read through the Bible, there's lots of stories like this. Take Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you've all read of Nicodemus. He's the guy who came to Jesus in the night. Remember that one? Nope, you don't. Okay, you need to read your Bible, guys, because there's good stories in there. Nicodemus came to Jesus in the night. It's quite funny because I heard a preacher say once, Nicodemus came to Jesus in the night because he didn't want anybody to know that he was meeting with Jesus. Well, actually, I think, personally, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, which was like the police of the day and for the Jews. They protected all the religious stuff. But he was also in the Sanhedrin, which was 70 men who were chosen out of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they were elevated to the highest position. These people were highly respected. They had skill and acumen. They were the best of the crowd, you might say, and very busy. I think Nicodemus came to Jesus in the night because he was very busy. That's all it is. He just, oh, gosh, it's, oh, it's 10 o'clock. I better go see Jesus. I've been doing Sanhedrin stuff all day. So he goes, he goes to the, see Jesus in the night and he says to, to Jesus, I just don't get this thing that goes on with you. What are you all about? And this is what Jesus said to him. It's words you know, very common for us. You, you have to be born again. Now, here's a man who's a practicing Pharisee. He's a Sanhedrin at the top of the pile. He's in control of people around him. He's controlling environment. And here's what Jesus says. You have to become as a little child or start all over again. Give up the right to control and let something else take control. Yeah. And it's called being born again. And you know what that is, the happy, clappy, born again is. We're often accused of being happy, clappy, born again is. But the truth is we are, most of us adults, in control. But we came to the point where we gave up control and started again. We're born again. That's what it means. What about the rich young ruler? You know, he comes to Jesus and he says, I want to know what I need to do to be right with God. Jesus says, well, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart. He said, I've done that from the beginning. And then Jesus says, well, you need to give up all your wealth. Give up all your money. Now, this is interesting because some people have made a doctrine that beats up on wealthy people. Like, you know, if you're wealthy, it's harder to get in. If you've got money, it's always difficult with this. And maybe there's some truth in that. But what say, what say, I went to Jesus, I was that man, and my problem was playing cards and gambling. So Jesus says, you need to do this. And then I said, I've done all that. And he says, well, you need to give up your gambling or cards because that's your control point. That's the thing that you keep surrendering to. When Jesus says that, it's not saying now here's a policy for all. When you become a Christian, you give up money, you give up card playing. You know, that's what some people do. They say, well, when I became a Christian, I gave up card playing. So all of you can't play cards. No, that's my control point. What's your control point? What's the thing Jesus would say you need to let go of so I can be received into your life and start again? What about, the, what about the woman who, uh, sorry, the, the two thieves on the cross? Jesus is on the cross. He's, he's done nothing wrong. He's, he's you, know, you know the story. And there's these two thieves. One of them decides to let go of control. And he starts talking about this great man. And he starts exonerating him and thinking, what the heck are you doing here? The other thief keeps control, carries on in the same angry language, and accuses the other thief 
of being an idiot and starts swearing at Jesus. He stayed in control. The other one let go of control. And Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise because you let go of yourself. You gave up the right to be in control and I will take control. See, becoming a Christian is not about how good you are, how much stuff you do, how righteous you need, think you need to be, how perfect you've lived your life. You just come and say, I can't do it anymore on my own. And we receive him. You know, I had the opportunity to meet, uh, you know, in Denmark today, they just recently actually, they started the atheist movement up. And it's, you know, they have churches around the globe called the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. I don't know if you know that. but And they're actually organized churches. They call them churches or fellowships. The biggest one is in Auckland, New Zealand. Anyway, they've started one in Denmark. Now, this guy, young man, about 35, he's causing grief for the Danish state. Because in Denmark, um, when you start work, you are taxed as a separate tax at 1.6%. And that goes to the state church. So the state church uh, is run by this tax. It pays all the bishops. It pays the priests. It pays the, for the buildings. It's millions and millions of dollars, of course. And you have to pay that tax or you have to deliberately opt out of the tax. So it's mandatory tax to pay unless you choose to opt out of it. So this young man who's an atheist has decided to show everyone how to opt out of the tax. And it's not very hard to do. And he's been on Facebook. Now he's on television. He's on all the news. He's quite famous in our land now because people are by the bucket load. The income of the church on this tax has dropped 18% in the last year and a half. And they don't know what to do. This guy... You know, he's amazing. I got a phone call and they said, would you like to meet this guy? I said, I would love to meet this guy. This atheist guy is quite a humble guy, actually. And we met in a coffee lounge. We spent hours together. And I said to him straight up, what is your story? Tell me your story. And he started his story. He lives in a little town or was born in a little town just outside of Copenhagen. And there's a, obviously a church in that town. And he can track back to the Reformation almost. That's four, five hundred years ago. His lineage of family who were priests or priests of that church. So he started talking about names of people who had been priests in that church and how the church functioned and what it did. Even today, his two parents are Lutheran priests. His two sisters are priests. He's the only one in the family who hasn't followed the tradition. He's an atheist. So... He's come out, you might say, and said all this. You can imagine the grief for the family because the lineage, his great-grandfather was the priest of that church. So he's come out and said this. What a shocking thing. So he said, what's your story? I said, what's interesting about your story and my story is all you talked about was tradition, systems, structure. In an hour and a half, you never once mentioned the person who started the church. He said, I don't know who started that church. You know, that's beyond my history. No, I said, Jesus Christ. You didn't say to me that you had accepted him. You didn't talk about your parents knowing him. You didn't talk about a relationship. See, that's that's the story I have. The story I have is not about tradition and system and structure. It's about, I just received Jesus. I just received him into my, I just needed somebody to get me out of what I was in. He was staggered. He'd never thought about it. Actually, we agreed at the end of our discussion. He wasn't really an atheist. He was an agnostic. He said, I don't really believe in atheism. I just don't know yet. I thought that was staggering. (laughs) So we've moved him slightly one way. He's been to Linda's church twice, cried all the way through it. 
Uh, and I said to him afterwards, what was that all that about? And he said, oh, you guys do community so well here. And I thought, yeah, yeah, radio. Is that, is that what it is? <laughs> I think it's beyond that. Let me help you here. You see, we receive something into our life when we let go of the control. And there's people here tonight, maybe, and you're, you're not a Christian. You don't know Jesus. Maybe you're here for the first time. Or maybe you're a backslidden person. That means that you've walked away from God and you're starting to come home, as we say. It's, and you know why people actually backslide? It's because they start to take control back again. I can do this myself. I'm stronger. I can make up my own mind. Well, maybe tonight, as we end this meeting, it's time for you to give control back to him. And bring nothing to the table, just receive what he's done. Second thing he says is walk in him. Got to get moving, walk in him. This is amazing. Once you get to receive him and get to the presence of Jesus and enjoy all that he's done, now you go somewhere. That's intriguing stuff because I don't know about you, but most people when they come to Jesus find pest, rest, (laughs) peace, you know, joy. And they just want to sit there and embrace all that. Here's what Jesus says. Now you've come, clear off. It's called go into all the world. So you've come, now go. See, the great thing about receiving him is you get purpose, direction, and destiny back again. But it's the right one. It doesn't say sit in him. doesn't say kneel in him. doesn't say crawl in him. It says walk in him. doesn't even say run in him. It just says make sure you're going in a direction. And if you haven't got one, the church collectively can help you with that direction, can get your mind on a direction together. That's what the church is about. So Jesus not only comes in, he gives us direction. Then he says, Paul says, you are rooted in him. We've received him. We walk in him. You are rooted in him. Now that is an agricultural symbol. And you'll notice in scripture, of course, they use a lot of sort of agricultural symbols, pruning and stuff like this. And here he says you're rooted in him. Now, this is interesting because trees succeed by how far the roots go down. So that's a downward issue, you know. And I've had to move some trees in my house because my wife's decided to do interior decorating, exterior decorating. You know how women are. They come and they move everything in the house, don't they? They move cushions and mirrors and chairs and you come home and where's the chair gone? Oh, it's over there now. And uh, where's the, the pantry is the worst, isn't it? Where you knew, you knew where the porridge is. And then it's over there now. No reason, it's just moved. Well, now she's doing that in the garden. You know, I don't like that tree there. You can move it over there. But you don't just move a tree, you know. Why, why would you want to move that? It just doesn't look right. You just move it over there. Well, I got to, I fought this for a number of years. Finally, I got to the stage where I had to move this tree, and um, tree wasn't very big, but what I found out was when you move a tree, the root ball is as big as the canopy of the leaves. You can't just actually go into a tree and hack around the tree trunk, pull it up, and then hope it'll grow. You have to take the root ball right around the whole... Ca- now, this root ball was massive. It was bigger than the tree. I couldn't even lift this thing. I, I had to, I, you know, I got it over to the hole. It f- I fell back in the thing and she's just standing there laughing. They don't help you when you move things. Have you noticed that too? There's no help whatsoever. It's just laughing and that's a bit crooked. How can a tree be crooked? Seriously. The tree's crooked. Anyway, wrong. You should have just moved it an inch that way. It looks better. Okay, so I got the tree in there. But I was super uh, sort of impressed by how these tree roots go right down. And now I get why we talk about being planted. 
Because as soon as you damage that root ball and you move it over there, the amount of energy and work that's required by that thing to sustain life is massive. So we use the word be planted, stay planted. There's a reason. You start picking up roots all the time and moving them over there, you damage the life and the productivity of that thing. So we, we talk, he talks, he'd be rooted, stay where you are, keep planted. But then he uses another symbol and he says, now be built. Now buildings go up. Roots go down. So he goes another way now and he says, now you go up, you're built up in him. And interestingly, it's a very technocratic term too because that's very agricultural. But this is about design and structure and engineering. Buildings don't just, you know, organically say, I think I'll be a building today. They have an architect, it's planned out. And we become a part of that building as we fit in our brick to our place so that the building is complete. Did you know that the price, if you went to London today and went to a hardware store and bought a brick, the value of that brick is 87p. But you take that brick in London today and you put it with a whole lot of other bricks called a house and the value of that brick today is 127 pound. That's fascinating. The value of the brick is increased by who it's connected to and the structure it forms. Phenomenal. Here's the problem. Some people love to be planted but never built up. Oh, I don't want to be a brick put in the wall of the house. Some people love to be in the wall of the house but they're never planted. They're all over the place. Friends, you've got to do both at the same time. You're planted and you're built up. In him you grow up. You don't grow up. You're made in form to be a part of the building that God is creating called the church. Does that make sense to you? And these are the great symbols he uses to describe what happens when you're in Christ. Then he says this, you're also then established in the faith. Now, faith has many facets in the scripture. You have the gift of faith, that's in Corinthians 12, which is a powerful moment where somebody uses that gift to change things. There's the gift, there's the fruit of faithfulness, it's an amazing thing with uh, fruit. I was talking to actually a guy today who's driving me, and he was a uh, uh, he was a gar- you know what do you call a, a, a gardener actually, and um, and I and I we were talking about well he was something else but I can't remember what it was but he did gardens anyway, and uh, we're talking about pruning trees, and and I said to him I guess what you're saying is that the um, reward for fruitfulness is pruning, and he said yeah that's a great way of putting it. Remember that when you're really fruitful. And your branches start getting chopped off. Why do you get pruned? To get better fruit, to get larger fruit, and to be more fruitful. But when we're fruitful, we don't want to be pruned. Anyway, isn't that life? Sometimes in life, your faith is tested. But he says you've got to be established in the faith. So the things you go through in life help you get established in faith. They help you become stronger, better, more equipped people. They help you become the people of faith, not faith of a religious set of doctrines you believe, but of faith even when all stuff is flying around and it doesn't seem possible to get through, you stand in faith. Actually, that young man was talking about it today. There's mountaintop and valley experiences and how valley experiences produce faith. In the mountaintop, we don't really need much faith, but in the valley moments, you need a lot of faith. Job is an interesting character in Bible. He's in the middle of your Bible, but actually chronologically he comes at the beginning. And it's a good idea to buy a chronological Bible and read it because it's all in the 
all in the way time unpack, and you'll find verses will move all over the place because they were written at different times. Well, Job is written right in the beginning, even though he's in the, bi- in the middle. So he's an early character in terms of the formation of, of doctrine and what it is. And Job is this man who is doing everything fairly right, um, and the devil comes and says, yeah, he's doing everything right because you put a hedge around him, God. You, you're protecting him. And God said, I'm going to take, or I'll take away the hedge. Do what you like to him. And this is what the devil did. He, give, he, give, he gave him boils. The devil's pretty dumb, really, isn't it, when you think about it? I mean, the hedge is gone, and here you go. Rah, I've got to be really creative here. God said, I can do anything. I'll give you some boils. How do you like that? Anyway, he gets a bit smarter as things go on. And in one moment, in one day, the Bible says that from the north to the south to the east to the west, like a wind blows, Job lost everything. He lost his cattle. He lost his land. He lost some of his family. lost his wealth in a day. Later on in the book of Job, Job is frustrated by all of this, and, but he's working his way through it. He becomes an honorable man. And then it says this in about, at the end of the book of Job, it says this, even though, Job said, even though it feels like God is trying to wipe me out, I will trust in him. That's faith. Faith isn't the ability to create things. Faith isn't the ability to do things. Faith is the ability to feel like even God is trying to wipe you out, but you still trust in him. That is true faith, isn't it? That is the bottom line faith. And friends, when moments come like that in our lives, that's when we're established in the faith. So he says, you've received him. You walk in him. You're rooted in him, you're built up in him, and you're established in your faith. These are the great things that Paul is teaching the Colossian church about how to deal with these issues. And then finally, he comes, or after that, this verse is written. I want to read it to you because you'll understand it in its context. This is what it says. This is verse 8, just after what we've read. See to it now, because of what I just said, that no one takes you through takes you captive through hollow, deceitful philosophy or blog pages. Oh, no, I put that in, sorry. (laughs) Which depend on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Listen to this. For in Christ, after all of this, he is the fullness of the deity and lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. What an amazing statement. In Christ, he is the deity fully and bodily formed. So he, he puts it all aside right there, and he says, here it is in this moment. It's in Christ. And he is God in the flesh. I love that whole thought, how Paul unpacks this and how Paul deals with this. And maybe tonight, where you are right now, there's a moment in your life where Heck, I just haven't given control to God. I'm, I'm not in letting him have, I'm taking control, but I need to get right with God. You know, we use that term, get right with God. And often we think that means I've got to do things that are right. But actually what it means is get right with God is let Jesus come in and you're right with God. It doesn't mean what you do gets right with God. It means he gets you right with God. Before we close this meeting, I want to give you an opportunity here tonight to maybe just give up control and let him let him take charge. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or you'd like to find out contact information or service times, then don't forget to visit our website, www.thejunctionchurch.com. God bless.